Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. That's kind of the age-old question. It definitely wasn't for lack of trying. I think over the last eight years, there's been a huge amount of focus on thalidomide as well as thalidomide-like drugs uh, for future applications. And I think that advances in technology have really made it possible for for us to look at problems in a different way. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things it can do for people and a planet. In today's episode, we're going to unravel an age-old mystery, well, a decades-old mystery. And it really starts back in the 1960s. And I remember being, you know, being a kid that watched TV in the 1970s that frequent television shows would feature people with uh, very conspicuous birth defects. They would be a torso and a normal head, but they would have uh, issues with limb development. And as a kid, this was really curious, as you know, what, how did this happen? And it was linked to a chemical called thalidomide. Actually, it was being used as a, in a therapeutic context, but led to these types of, of, of problems in development in human beings. And exactly how it happened and exactly why it was an issue remained an elusive question for science for a long time and was recently resolved almost after 50-some years since the drug was used in that context. And so today we have Dr. Catherine Donovan, who is a postdoctoral researcher who and first author on a paper that came out regarding the mechanism for how thalidomide was uh, elucidating or was causing these changes in human development. So th- welcome to the podcast, uh, Dr. Donovan. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I think it's great. I'm, I, this has always been a question to me uh, as a scientist and you know, always an interest was you know, th- this, this issue of thalidomide and, and how it worked and what it did. And some interesting other things over the years that have come out of thalidomide, which are, it really kind of steeps this whole thing in a, kind of a sad irony in a way. And we'll talk about that towards the end of the podcast. But um, maybe start out by what is thalidomide? So thalidomide is a small molecule uh, drug that was created back in around 1957 um, to be used as a sedative. Yeah, so that in what context was it mostly used during application? So in the beginning, thalidomide was created in Germany in around 1957. It was marketed primarily as a sedative, um, which was very sought after because this was wartime era. Um, there was a lot of anxiety and depression, and it, was, it became very popular very fast. And so it really found a important application in the treatment of morning sickness. And when did that happen, and, and where was it mostly being used? Yes, yeah, so I think the primary reason the drug gained traction as a morning sickness remedy was because of its apparent safety. Um, so during initial drug testing, when thalidomide was created, testing in mice showed that it was almost impossible to reach a lethal dose. And of course, back then, uh, testing in mice was enough to suggest that humans would be okay too. So thalidomide then became known as the morning sickness pill. And this kind of spread 
throughout the world like wildfire. So it was everywhere. Yeah, but it, but it was used pretty much in a in a handful of countries for this application. I know it wasn't a thing here in the states, right? So it wasn't FDA approved in the states. So Francis Kelly uh, put a stop to the FDA approval. I know there was quite a push to push this drug through because it was showing fantastic properties and effects in other countries. Um, but she noticed that there were, after long time use, there were a lot of signs of peripheral neuropathy, and she kind of put a stop to this. So this prevented it going out into the market um, as an FDA-approved drug. But there are rumors about um, samples being handed out throughout the world. So. And, and really, what was the problem that, it's, that people started to see um, showing up in populations with time and with use? The long-term use, as I said, uh, resulted in the peripheral neuropathy. And the bigger problem was recognized in the 60s when two different doctors, one in Germany, Lenz, and then a second doctor in Australia, McBride, recognized that several of their patients were coming back with babies with missing limbs as well as many other abnormalities, so problems with their eyes and their hearts. And they quickly realized that the one thing that all of these mothers had in common was that they had taken thalidomide. And this has resulted in their babies being born with um, missing limbs. And how prevalent was the problem? How many people were ultimately affected by thalidomide use? So due to the properties and the apparent safety of this wonder drug, it spread around the world pretty fast. And it was prescribed by doctors as well as given out as a trial drug. Um, so back then, there were very few regulations involved, um, the recording of prescriptions or drugs handed out. So we can only estimate that there, are, there were roughly 10,000 babies born with the thalidomide embryopathy, and roughly half of those um, born survived past their first year. And then the number of miscarriages, we just can't put a number to that. Well, because that, that does make sense. I think the, that miscarriages were, does it really depend upon when a uh, expectant mother were to use the drug? Yes, and I, I think also how much of the drug. So we know that one single fifty, um, one single dose is enough to cause the birth defects if taken within the critical period of um, limb formation. But I think after a critical period, a lot of the babies were born fine. But I think early on in pregnancy, that's when a lot of the miscarriages happened. And so here we are sitting, you know, 60 years after the drug was first used and almost 60 years since Lenz first described the uh, syndrome associated with the developmental disorders in thalidomide use. And why did it take so long for researchers to really crack the mechanism on this? That's kind of the age-old question. It definitely wasn't for lack of trying. I think over the last eight years, there's been a huge amount of focus on thalidomide as well as thalidomide-like drugs. Uh, for future applications, and I think that advances in technology have really made it possible for look, for us to look at problems in a different way. So instead of looking for a specific target, we're kind of able to look more broadly at the problem. Yeah, and I, I know that the use of genomics tools and other uh, higher-end, large-scale, global surveys of molecules and interactors you know, really facilitates these kinds of studies. But back when they first discovered this, and first started using it, was this something that was designed for an application or was it, were they just testing compounds on, you know, to, to see if they had effects on human mood or stability or physiology? I think they probably designed it with 
um, an application in mind, but didn't work out to um, to work for that application. And then they kind of, as they do with a lot of drugs, they test it on various different things, and they find that it might have a beneficial effect on something else, completely left field, and then kind of goes down that rabbit hole of new applications. Yeah, I, I know that drill. I mean, I, I take a, a medication for sleep that was originally prescribed for something completely different. Yet it works. Exactly. And yeah. they noticed in the uh, in the uh, patients in the clinical trials who were being tested for the effect on their indication that uh, they were reporting really good sleep. <laughs> and so here we are years later using it as a sleeping medication that's much safer than most of the crazy stuff that's out there. So this kind of thing happens. I'm just just curious how that's how it got started. But let's go into your paper and your work um, on the other side of a break. So we're speaking with Dr. Catherine Donovan. She's a postdoctoral researcher and first author of a paper which really cracked a rather ancient mystery in the world of medicine. Is how was thalidomide causing its uh, deformative effects on embryos? And this is the Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll be back in just a moment. Hey, everyone. This is Nick Syke from No Ideas Media. If you listen to this podcast, you're probably an awesome person who's probably found themselves in a debate or two about the validity of genetic engineering and its use in food production. You may have even noticed the same problem I've been picking up on. There's lots of good information out there about genetic engineering, but very few people who need to see it are exposed to it. Well, I'm making videos that lay people like myself can actually understand and digest. I'm a filmmaker, so this is my contribution to science communication. They are the perfect thing to post on the wall of that friend you have. You know, that person who just can't seem to grasp the awesomeness of GE crops, who maybe gets hung up on things like chemicals or Monsanto or whatever. The videos I make cover a wide variety of topics, and you can watch them by searching No Ideas Media, remember that's no as in knowledge, on Facebook or YouTube. The videos will likely cover what you already know, but the point is, we gotta share them with people who don't know. The mission at No Ideas Media is to be pragmatic, not dramatic. So help us spread the right information about genetic engineering. Thanks a lot. And welcome back to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Today we're talking about thalidomide and finally cracking the molecular basis of its effects. And we're speaking with Dr. Catherine Donovan from the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute at Harvard University in Boston. And... Um, we first part of the podcast, we talked more about what this is, and now we'll go into what they found. And well, we talked about mechanism. We knew that some things were known, you know, for probably last couple decades. Scientists have been starting to identify different proteins that interact with thalidomide, different um, other uh, potential uh, compounds, or, or should say intermediates, in the cellular environment, which could be. Uh, responsible for mechanism. And there was this thing called cerebellon. And could you talk a little bit about what that is and maybe how that was discovered? Yes, yeah, so cerebellon is a substrate recognition component of an E3 ligase complex. So basically what its role is, is it binds, it recognizes and it binds to specific proteins within the cell. And these proteins are then tagged with another protein called ubiquitin. And this tagging um, basically labels them for destruction by the human's proteasome, which is our own inbuilt trash disposal system. <laughs> yeah, so that's a great way to put it. So in other words, <laughs> this is the thing that goes around the cell and uh, recognizes proteins that need to go away. So, and then it tags them with a little tag that says, you're going to the garbage dump. 
And so, exactly. th- yeah, so this is a, then this is a really important mechanism that we can't um, overstate. I know that back when I was in grad school, in undergraduate especially, we thought that all of this gene regulation stuff was being mediated by positive acting factors that just would turn genes on and that's how things work. But we really underthought how important it was to be degrading those factors as well as degrading factors which shut genes off. And so this idea of ubiquitination, and ubiquitin is this little tag that says destroy me, um, is really has to be extremely precise. And we see roles for ubiquitination in all kinds of diseases, so a number of them, things like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's included. Um, but here's a role for um, this, this thing called uh, cerebellon t- is actually part of this complex that recognizes the target and then does that ubiquitination. Okay, so this is actually part of the the machinery that does the work. This is an E3 ubiquitin ligase, and those are found um, ubiquitously, <laughs> hence the clever name, <laughs> um, <laughs> across plants and animals and, uh, and uh, other critters too. So what were the findings in your work with respect to this protein and uh, its downstream targets? So what we found is that thalidomide, was, it was actually found a few years ago, that thalidomide actually binds to cerebellum, and what happens is it alters the surface of cerebellum, and this prevents the typical substrates or typical proteins that cerebellum would usually bind and tag for destruction. So what happens is when thalidomide binds, it alters the surface, and this forms a favorable surface for other proteins to bind, other proteins such as cell-4. So the binding of cell-4 to cerebellum resulted in it being tagged for destruction by the proteasome. Yeah, and cell-4, um, what, what does cell-4 do? So cell-4 is a very important gene in um, embryonic development. So it's known as one of the, I think there's about five um, key genes that are really important for developing of the embryo. And cell-4 is one of these proteins. And I know that most of the time when we name a gene, it, like the name of the, the, you know, in this case, SAL4, S-A-L-L-4, sometimes has a um, relationship to how it was discovered or what its function is. And so does SAL4 have any particular um, meaning in the nomenclature? So it's a spot-like transcription factor. So there's actually four members of the family, SAL1, 2, 3, and 4. SAL4 is more specifically known for um, development of limbs. Okay, so so cell four is a transcription factor, and for those folks who are you know maybe not molecular biologists, transcription factors are proteins that bind DNA or associate with DNA uh, have roles in turning genes on and off, and that's kind of the kind of the lay way of describing what a transcription factor is. So this is a transcription factor that's required for normal limb development, and uh, in this one, uh, so just. Maybe if you could put together for us the cell four uh, cerebron thalidomide or cerebron and uh, thalidomide um, relationship, just so that we're real clear. So what happens is thalidomide binds to cerebron, and this then encourages cell four to bind to the thalidomide cerebron complex, and we get this ternary complex formed, in which cell four is then labeled and tagged for destruction. What happens when you destruct the transcription factor is then you no longer get regulation of those downstream genes. So cell 4 is present to regulate, so either turn on or off, various genes. When we're destructing cell 4, we remove that ability. 
So all of those genes that are required for um, embryonic development are no longer turned on. And is this a master regulator of many different genes? I believe so. So we don't actually know a lot about what Salford does. This is something that I'm going to continue working on now. Um, so we know it's involved in many um, developmental pathways, but the bi biology is quite complicated. Um, so this is something I want to continue working on, what is upstream and downstream of Salford and what genes it's actually regulating. So this is where we need to go into more of a biolo biological approach. And sometimes we learn a lot about mechanisms of genes because of naturally occurring mutations. And there are people who are born who've never, their mothers have never touched thalidomide or had any exposure to similar compounds, yet they are born with uh, things like Duane Radial Ray syndrome or other syndromes that really mirror exactly what happens with thalidomide. And, and were those informative or enlightening in any way in your discoveries? Yes, so these mutations were essential for us. Um, so finding that cerebellum degrade sulfur in a thalidomide-dependent manner is not something that we can test on humans or animals, right? Um, there's such strong regulations with using this drug now. So digging into the medical literature and finding that loss-of-function mutations in sulfur actually caused almost identical phenotypes and effects um, to what we see with thalidomide victims, this kind of pieced the puzzle together for us. So the phenotype between both mutations in cell 4 as well as thalidomide syndrome is so similar that there were several reports of misdiagnoses between patients with um, Duane Radial Ray Syndrome as well as thalidomide syndrome. So it's just very similar. Yeah, it's like it's a, um, almost a signature spectrum of a very particular uh, um, I, I hate to use the word deformities, but but um, really uh, uh, the syndrome associated with this. And uh, and th that must have been really enlightening. But you, you mentioned earlier, though, that they did a lot of experiments on mice. Never saw this. So what is it about mice that makes them uh, uh, insensitive to thalidomide? Yeah, so all of the testing was done in mice. Um, so we've, we've, we know that there's a strong species-specific effect of thalidomide. The biology becomes quite complicated. So what we've found is if we think of this huge like ternary complex, we have three components. We have sulfur on one side, we have the thalidomide in the middle, and then we have cerebellum on the other side. What we've found is that there's mutations in both sulfur and cerebellum in mice. And this prevents the two proteins from coming together through thalidomide and binding. So if sulfur cannot bind to cerebellum, it's not able to be tagged for destruction and we don't see this loss of sulfur and therefore um, embryopathy is involved. So there's, there's five different amino acids that differ between the binding region of human sulfur and mice sulfur. So we're able to, and we have done this, we have mutated the mouse sulfur to make it look more like human and we're then able to degrade it. Wow, that's cool. So if you make mice uh, that are... Uh, containing like transgenic mice that are containing the human thal4, would you be able to induce the uh, thalidomide-based phenotype? It's possible. So I think the biology and the development of mice is probably, or well, we know it's quite different to humans. So whether or not thal4 is sufficient to create um, a mouse with birth defects, we're not sure. Well, the other thing that is really interesting about this drug is you're talking about um, how it 
uh, changes the ubiquitination of critical regulators of cell function. And that, uh, you know, the good guys are going to the garbage, right? The ones that are required for normal development. And so a lot of discussion has gone on, particularly, I guess, in the 1990s, maybe in the early 2000s, with the use of thalidomide as a potential anti-cancer agent. And could you tell us a little bit more about that and maybe some of its anti-angiogenic properties or, or, you know, what has been done and what do we know about thalidomide and cancer? Yeah, so thalidomide, as well as two of its analogs, analogs, lenalidomide and pomalidomide, are now FDA approved and are used alongside other drugs such as dexamethasone to treat various cancers, um, most often multiple myeloma and um, DAL5QMDS. So I think it has a lot of potential in treating cancers. The mechanism underlying how it treats the cancer, I think we're still learning, right? In in our paper, we showed that there's so many targets that thalidomide degrades. There's so many transcription factors that are degraded by this protein, and we really don't know what a lot of those do. So this is kind of ongoing work to try and discover what each of these transcription factors do. Um, But leading more into more broader cancer treatments in cell four, I think there's a lot of really cool work coming out by Dan Tennant and Lee Chai um, who have shown that starving cells of cell four can help to limit tumor growth in mice. Um, so cell four, as we know, is a key developmental protein and we know that when its levels are reduced, um, this causes problems for embryo development. So recent literature has shown that cell 4 is overexpressed in many cancers, and this might suggest that it's playing a similar role in cancer in helping development and progression. Yeah, so you could imagine very easily that if cell, if cell 4 is serving as some sort of master regulator, sure, it may have things that have uh, long-term consequences in morphological development and during embryo, gen- or embryo um, development, but a lot of those may be metabolic and maybe those are shared with these um, kind of aberrant gene expression patterns that we see in cancer development. And is that kind of the current interpretation? I think so. I think that's the way it's headed. Yeah. And so what is the future of thalidomide? Is, is it really kind of a strange irony that here was a molecule that started out as a molecule with great promise, then really went to um, to be very widely loathed because of its effects on humans and now we have a future in actually solving a at least a, a subset of specific cancers. It's kind of a weird rags to riches to rags to riches story uh, for cancer biology. It really is. So I think along with its teratogenic activity, thalidomide has a lot of good disease-fighting activities. And I think the best outcome for this drug in the future is that a truly safe version is created that can retain all of the positive but remove all of the negative effects. So I hope that at some point in the future, this can happen. And what what are you thinking about for, you know, your postdoctoral researcher, you have this great paper, and, and that was a ton of work, by the way. I, I was really impressed by how many different, <laughs> how many different um, approaches that were used to demonstrate this from, you know, running protein gels to lots of bioinformatics. You know, what's next for you? Do you think you'll still work with thalidomide? I think I'll work with thalidomide for a bit longer. So our lab um, has quite a strong focus in using thalidomide for other applications. So we we actually create these degrader-like molecules whereby we attach a linker to thalidomide and then on the other end we put another inhibitor for, let's say, a kinase. 
And what this does is this enables us to choose which proteins we degrade. So rather than just degrading these transcription factors, we're actually able to bring in a protein of choice and allow that to be degraded. And we're hoping that um, this area will kind of take off. It's quite cool at the moment. Um, so that's kind of what I'm going to work on for the next wee while. Well, but it makes a lot of sense. So you're basically able to use the um, cells disposal system and rewire it to target what you want targeted. And we know that cancer, especially cancer biology, has in a number of different diseases, uh, have these um, molecules that accumulate that you really want to suppress. And, and so this is kind of where what you're describing, something like that? Yes, that's right. That's really, it sounds really promising, and it could be a great way to, and, and I always think of it this way, that, you know, with the work that we're doing, even if we don't discover a new drug, we at least may define a new vulnerability so that someone else can <laughs> find a new drug. And, uh, That's and, right. Yeah, so it seems to be a really, um, a really promising approach, and wish you the best of luck on that. Uh, so are, if people want to learn more about what you do and maybe the progress of this work or um, just more about your future in general here as you proceed forward, uh, are you present on social media or is there a website that they could follow? Yeah, so uh, my boss, Eric Fisher's page, is a great place to learn more about the lab and what our team does. Um, I also have a page on Twitter and all of the typical academic social media pages. And thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. Share this episode with a friend. Share the review on iTunes. Uh, help us expand our audience by sharing what we're sharing. We're always very grateful for all the feedback and all the listeners we have every week and all the kind words from people who find this a valuable exercise. My name is Kevin Fulta. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you again next week. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. Send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review of this podcast on iTunes and recommend it to a friend. More downloads help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's Electronic Lab Notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.